mic this morning, and I realize why, Sue. <clears throat> I'm the only one that uses this mic. PQ never uses it. It's my mic. But Sue used it last week to preach, and his head is... Uh, <laughs> And so I'm like, what's wrong with this? Why is it not fitting my ear? This is my mic. <laughs> but it was because Sue used it last week, so it's feeling very uh, unstable. But good afternoon, everyone. <laughs> Today is Christmas um, Sunday. It is also the fourth Sunday of Advent, and the theme is love, which is appropriate. Jesus Christ, God, Jesus is love. Uh, I've been preaching a series um, of people from the Bible for a while now. I think it's been a year, actually. Um, and today, I was thinking, well, the obvious person from the Bible that I should highlight today is Jesus, right? You'd be wrong. So <laughs> remember I said Jesus is not always the answer in Sunday school. Every kid says Jesus, no matter what the question is. Um, but I want to begin by letting you guys know about this. Samuel Beckett is a famous Irish uh, writer of the 20th century, and he wrote a play entitled Waiting for Godot. <clears throat> it was probably his most famous work. It was published in 1953, and it was originally written in French. He's an Irish guy, but he moved and lived in Paris, and he wrote this in French. It's a satire on the human condition, and there are many political, uh, psychological, philosophical, theological interpretations um, about this play. Um, and here's one such theological interpretation concerning this. Uh, the interpretation goes like this, that the two main characters, they represent humanity, and throughout the whole play, what's going on is that they're waiting for someone named Gado. They're waiting for someone named Gado to come. And in this theological interpretation, they're saying that Gado is God, right? So they're waiting for God to come, but he never shows up. They wait in vain, indefinitely, although they're repeatedly told by some messenger that he is coming and that he might come tomorrow. And so they wait. But in the meantime, it's a really dreary, sad, uh, unhappy existence for these two guys. And the, implica the implication in all of this is that there is no God, that life is absurd, and ultimately, there is no meaning in our existence. How sad, right? How depressing. Beckett believes that many people live their whole lives waiting for God, waiting for God to show up, but that they wait in vain. It's also interesting that these two characters, they actually claim to be acquaintances of this person named Gatto, but in fact, they hardly, they, they hardly know him, and they even actually admit to the fact that if, a, if he showed up and he came, they wouldn't recognize him. So these two are pretty pathetic, um, and they, they even contemplate suicide during the course of this play. They contemplate suicide a few times, and, but then they don't actually even go through with it because they can't even be bothered to actually put in the effort to commit suicide. For people like Samuel Beckett, all this talk about waiting in hope is pure foolishness. All the talk about waiting for God and about hope is just pure foolishness. God is not going to ever show up. We've all been deceived, and so we should all stop expecting him to. So depressing, right? I don't know how you can sit through this play. but, And we all know people who get disillusioned with God. 
We all know people. We have friends. We have uh, those family members, former church members. We know people. Some become apathetic as the wait goes on and on and on as they wait for God. Some, they lose their hope. Some, they even lose their faith and walk away from their faith, walk away from God, walk away from church. Some become bitter. They become angry. And they even become hostile towards God in this whole waiting as they wait. There will always be people who believe that it is futile to wait for God. And we forget the fact, as we're waiting for God, that he has already come. We forget that he has already come in the person of Jesus Christ and that he will come again. So he has already come, and what we're waiting for now is for his return, that he will come again. In fact, God comes to us many times in a variety of ways, variety of situations throughout our lives. We encounter him every day, amen? Every day we encounter God in various ways, big ways, small ways, unexpected ways, expected ways, in every way. But still there are those of us and those who really, really, really give in to doubt and despair over this. And they grow weary of waiting for their God to show up. You know people like that, right? And the thing that's hard about waiting is the waiting. There's nothing for it. There's nothing else. There's no way that I can help make it go faster or, or do anything. When you are in that phase and in the time in your life and in that season of your life where God has you waiting, you just have to wait. And that's the difficult part. So the season of Advent is all about waiting. It's all about waiting expectantly with hope, peace, with joy, and with love for our Savior God to come. And with Christmas two days away, I know many, many people who can't, they absolutely can't wait for Christmas, especially the kids. Now, probably, you know, it has more to do with opening gifts than with Jesus, but people are so excited about Christmas. Even those who know nothing about baby Jesus or Christianity or anything, they're just excited about, you know, the the big guy in the red suit, Santa Claus, and they're just so excited. But I was thinking about one thing, and this is totally um, aside from my message. I was thinking, you know how people say it's better to give than to receive? And I thought about that. And people get so excited about Christmas because they're thinking about all the gifts that they're going to get, right? You see all the pretty wrapped gifts under the Christmas tree. You're tempted by it every day. You want to shake it. You want to peek at it and, you know, all this stuff. And if you're the type of family that hides gifts, you know, every day you're trying to look for it. And the whole thing is exciting about receiving the gift and opening the gift. Well, this year for the very first time, my daughters, Emma and Maddie, they actually bought gifts for Hoon and myself. They have been given an allowance all year, and so they actually saved their allowance, and they actually bought gifts without us knowing what it is. This is the first year. They, they wrapped it themselves. They went to great lengths to hide it in terms of like what it is so that we can't guess it. But Hoon and I, were, we're not big on gifts and, and Christmas and, and in that way, in the commercial you know, Santa kind of a thing. We never told them there was a Santa and things like that. So I realized they are super way more excited about giving us these gifts than we are about getting it and opening it. We're just kind of blasé about it, but every day they're like, we can't wait for Christmas. Mommy, you're going to love it. I can't wait to see when you open it. I can't wait for you to open it. And they say the same thing to him. Can't wait for you, Daddy, wait for you to open it. And Daddy, remember, you can't tell Mommy. Mommy, don't tell Daddy. They're all so excited. And for the first time, 
I realized it was like a teaching um, parenting moment for me. I never considered our Heavenly Father, who is the giver of the gift of Jesus, his only son, who gave us his son Jesus as a gift to the world, and how God may feel as the giver of the gift. We focus so much on receiving the gift, the gift of salvation, receiving the gift of Jesus Christ, receiving all this, right? And just in that um, interaction with my kids this year, it really caused me to pause and, and think about the giver and about Heavenly Father, God's role in being the giver of the gift. And so I just wanted to share that briefly. So yeah, people are excited about Christmas. And so now I want to look at the Christmas story in the Bible. We've all heard over a hundred million thousands of times the typical story of the Christmas, right? All the details. We know about Mary and Joseph and she's pregnant with child and they're traveling to go to Bethlehem to be counted. And we know that she's quite pregnant and when they arrive, um, she's ready to give birth but there's no room for them in the inn. And so they end up having to give birth to their firstborn and they lay him in a manger, not in a clean sanitary place, but they lay him in this manger. We know about the shepherds, we know about the angels that appear out of the sky, startle the shepherds and telling them that, you know, there's, you know, great news, you know, joyful news for all the world and the shepherds are excited and they like let's go and see what this is all about and the angels guide them and tell them and so they go to see we know all about the wise men from the east they're following this miraculous uh star and they've seen it and they're following and they travel every picture always pictures three of them and always pictures them you know traveling on these um big camels we, and they come bearing gifts. We know all about King Herod and his reaction. We hear about how he feels threatened because he's, he, he hears that there's a king of the Jews and there's going to be a king being born. And so, of course, he feels threatened and he orders the slaughter and murder of all uh, little boys who are age two and under. So these are all the typical things that we think about when we hear the Christmas story. But today I want to focus on a part of the story that's very often overlooked. The gospel writer Luke he records how God revealed to two separate people that this baby Jesus was the true Messiah. And this was the true Messiah that the world had been waiting for. And these two people, you guessed it, who do you think they are? That's right, it's Simeon and Anna. Simeon and Anna waiting for Jesus. These are two people that the gospel writer Luke writes about. Along with the shepherds and along with the wise men we hear so much about, these two were very much part of the first Christmas story. So if you guys could all open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Open to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading. Actually, that's incorrect. We're going to start with not verse 25, but we're going to start with verse 21. This is the NIV version. You can follow along in whatever version you have, but up here is the NIV. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name that the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written to present him to the um, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said 
said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons needed to be given as a sacrifice. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for a revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that, we, that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And there was also a prophet, a prophetess, named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her hus husband only seven years after her marriage, and then she was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, Anna gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, we're introduced to Simeon and Anna starting in verse 25, although I began reading it in 21. And from their reaction and this interaction that Simeon and Anna has with Jesus and with Jesus' parents, I think that we can learn four things, four things about them that we should and how we should respond as well as we are looking forward and looking ahead to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first is, we're told that Simeon was righteous and devout. Yeah. So there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. We're told he's righteous and devout. He was devoted and he was faithful to God while waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel is the messianic hope. It's spoken of in the Old Testament. And this phrase, it refers to Jesus. And it's frequently found in Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. Now, Isaiah from the Old Testament, the prophet, he says that the Messiah will come. And that this Messiah is going to deliver Israel from the bondage of all these other nations. Simeon believed it. Simeon believed the prophetic words of Isaiah. And he waited. He waited and waited for this Messiah to come. In fact, the Holy Spirit, it says here, revealed to Simeon that he would not see death, that he would not die until this happened, until his eyes had seen this Jesus Christ, until he had seen the Messiah come. And the Bible doesn't tell us how old Simeon is, but tradition says that he was 113 years old. I'm not sure how they arrive at that, but looking up in different commentaries and stuff, they, they, the tradition or legend has it that he was 113 years old. Can you imagine living and waiting for that long? Living and waiting for that long. That's the one thing that you're waiting for, knowing that you will not die until this happens. And you have no way of knowing when it's going to happen. He's 113 years old, if we believe tradition. Simeon believed the Holy Spirit. And he waited faithfully. And in the waiting, he was devout and righteous. And then we have Anna, the prophetess. 
She was a widow for 84 years. She was a widow for 84 years, and some people believe that she was 84 years old, meaning that either she was a widow for 84 years and she's older, or that she was 84 years now. Now, she married for only seven years. Can you imagine that? Only for seven years before she became a widow. So seven years with her husband, and then the rest, years and years and years and years, of being a widow. And of course, she never remarried. And look what the Bible says about her. She was always at the temple, worshiping, fasting, and praying every day for 84 years. Always doing this, worshiping, fasting, and praying at the temple. That is faithfulness and devotion. That's incredible. Can you imagine if you had to come to church every single day to, to pray and to worship and fast? And I mean, we're just asking you for three days, you know, three or four days at the beginning of January uh, to, you know, set our hearts upon God and the things of God, to meditate, to pray, to fast with us and, and come to church, right, every evening just for three days. But can you imagine for this long, for 84 years? Think about this for a moment. Right now, we have heard and we believe that Jesus is coming back again, right? We as believers, we believe this, that Jesus is coming back, right? I keep being reminded of the, you know, uh, those children's song that talks about Jesus coming back. But we don't know when. No one knows when. We don't know if it's going to be tomorrow. We don't know if it's going to be today in five minutes or if it's going to be a hundred and um, some years. Could we be described as waiting faithfully and devoutly in our everyday life for Jesus to return. Look at your own life. And we who say, each one of us, I, I saw all these heads you know, shaking and nodding, saying that, yes, we believe that Jesus is coming again. Yes, we believe it. But could it be said of us that in our waiting and in our day-to-day -day life, as we are waiting, that we are being devout and faithful and waiting with great expectation that there's, it's not just a uh, passive waiting, getting on with my life, doing everything else, and just in the background, I know that, you know, Jesus may come or he may, you know, it could be today or tomorrow, not like that, but there's a, like a proactiveness in it. Could it be said of us that our lives and how we live day to day is set upon the fact that he may return at any moment, that we are being faithful and devout in the waiting, or is it barely a thought that doesn't really impact our day-to-day -day lives? I mean, we are so busy these days. It barely impacts us or has any bearing on our day-to-day -day lives and how we live. Do we live honestly like we believe Jesus could come back any day? That's the hard thing I said about waiting. We just don't know. And in the waiting, like I said, in this play, Waiting for God O, is when we start to get tired and discouraged and lose hope and we start to, other things distract us and, and other things, our lives are filled with all these other things that will take our focus and our attention away from who we are as children waiting for the return of our Messiah. Simeon and Anna were quite old by all accounts, and they didn't know. They didn't know when this was going to happen. They didn't know. Holy Spirit told him, you will not die, you will not taste death until this happens, but he had no idea of when the promised Messiah was going to come. And so they waited years. How long before we see Jesus return? It could be, like I said, years. It could be at any moment. And we can learn from these two here what it looks like what it looks like to live a life waiting and, and actively and faithfully 
waiting for Jesus to come again. And secondly, because they were so devout, they were able to recognize Jesus immediately. Thank you. And because of this devout waiting, if you set your heart and mind towards something, right, then you will be readily recognize it when it happens. And so because of this, they were able to recognize Jesus immediately. Let's look at verse 27. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Simeon was led by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple that particular day. I don't know if Simeon went every single day, but on this particular day, it says that he was led by the Holy Spirit and he went to the temple. But it doesn't say that he was told why he had to come to the temple. It doesn't say he was told who to look for and what he had to do. Simeon just sees this baby and knows. He walks right up to the parents of Jesus. He sees Mary and Joseph, and he just takes the baby in his arms, kind of like what we do at Hope Church. Any baby we see, we just swoop in, and, and we just take the baby, all of us. We don't know whose baby it is, you know, but we just see so many babies, and we love babies, and we just take babies. And so here is... Simeon, he walks in, sees, and just knows. He knows. I don't know. It's not like the baby Jesus is levitating. It's not like baby Jesus is performing some kind of crazy miracles or anything. But Simeon walks in, sees a baby, and knows, reaches and holds up the baby in his arms. I'm sure that Mary and Joseph were not the only parents there that day. Think about it. When you see a lot of the pictures and a lot of the stories, you just imagine that it's just all adults and Mary and Joseph are the only two people that have brought this little baby. It's not true. As we read in verse 23, every firstborn male was to be brought to the temple and presented to God a month after they were born. Jesus was not the only baby that was born, you know? So you've got to imagine that there are other parents there who brought their children, who brought their sons to be presented here at the temple. It was the law of the Lord, and so it had to be done. So as far as anyone else saw, Jesus was just another baby. You know, Mary and Joseph were just um, another parent who brought their child to be dedicated, and it happened all the time. It was a normal, everyday occurrence. And that's not how Simeon knew that this was the one because they'd never had a baby in the temple before. And so, oh, let me show you this picture. I always try to add a visual here. So there's Anna. She's given a cane. And there's Simeon. And there, well, in this picture, baby Jesus' head is glowing, okay? And so that just is a big clue right there that there's something, you know, otherworldly and supernatural. But I'm sure in the original story, his head was not glowing like that. Um, but yes. And so... Both Simeon and Anna, they recognized him immediately, immediately, immediately. And the question again I want to ask is each time, what about us? What about us? Would we be able to recognize Jesus? We think we would because of all the pictures that we've seen, the artists, different illustrations and renditions and paintings of what Jesus looks like, you know? And so we think that if we saw someone walk in with the long hair and, and wearing this white robe type of thing, and, you know, we think that we would recognize it as Jesus, right? It's hard to recognize something or someone that we're not familiar with already. It's difficult to recognize something or someone that we are not already intimately familiar with. Without an ongoing, personal, growing relationship with Jesus, with God, we may not be able to immediately recognize him. 
we think there's a difference between you know head knowledge and heart knowledge so we think that we will be able to recognize him but who's to say jesus is going to come back looking like that in all those you know illustrations and and cartoons and and um picture bibles that we have and stuff like that that's not what jesus may look like right and so we may not be able to immediately recognize him if we're not in tune with the holy spirit or if we're not in tune with the word of god made flesh which is Jesus Christ himself. We may or may not recognize him, and we may miss him. We may miss a lot of what God is doing in this world. We may miss a lot of what God is doing around us and with people among us. God's divine providence, that God is active, he is alive, and he is active in this world. We, if we are not familiar intimately and have that relationship with Jesus then and the Holy Spirit, we will not recognize it. We think we will, but we would be wrong. Thirdly, when they recognize Jesus, Simeon and Anna, they do the natural thing upon seeing him. And what is that? They worship him. When they see Jesus and they recognize who he is, they worship him. In verses 29 through 32, this is what um, Simeon says. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This is known as the Song of Simeon. It's actually a song of praise. It's a hymn. Many people believe that when he saw and he you know, lifted up baby Jesus, that he sang this, that this is not just simply a prayer that he spoke, but that he sang this. Since the fourth century, you'll find evidence that this, this the uh, Song of Simeon, was used in various evening worship services called Vespers. The Anglican Church, they have something called even so Evening Song, and in their evening uh, prayer services, they will actually recite and sing this the Song of Simeon. In the Jewish culture, culture, it was common that if something amazing happened and you wanted to worship God, that you would just break out into song. If, if you saw something amazing and you wanted to just worship God, it happens today too. You would just kind of break out into, into song. I've never really seen it, but um, actually my daughters, they have a friend um, and She's Jewish, and they were invited to her bat mitzvah. And so I went to the, a Jewish um, synagogue and went to the service, the Shabbat, for the first time ever in my life. It was amazing. How many of you guys have ever been to a Jewish uh, service? It's amazing. It's long. It was like two and a half hours long, right? Two and a half. But they sing the whole service. They sing the whole service. It's amazing. From the scriptures, they will sing, you know, and in that sing-songy voice. And um, I was actually practicing this morning and thinking that I might do it for you, you know, but I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. But so I was going to sing in Hebrew for you guys. Um, but yeah, when we were there, you know, they would just sing in Hebrew. It was just beautiful. Everything was sung. And so, again, if you wanted to worship God, it was just natural, and it was just the Jewish culture for them to break out into song. Simeon worships Jesus because he recognized who this baby is. He sees this baby. He's like, oh, now he can die in peace. He's lived a very long time. And so now, you know, this is the sign that he is able to go and retire in peace. And so he lifts up this baby, and just this song breaks forth. 
and Anna as well. Anna does the same thing, verse 38. But we don't know exactly what she says exactly because it's not recorded in the Bible. It simply says that she gave thanks to God. Another translation says that she began praising God. But it doesn't write out like here for Simeon's song exactly what she said in the thanking of God, in the praising of God. So again, I want to bring it down to us. How about us? When we see God, when we recognize him, when we're in his presence, what's our reaction? What's our reaction? I say that God's presence is here with us every Sunday when we gather together, where two or more are gathered, and we are worshiping God. We are in his presence. I recognize that he is here. I know he is here. What is our reaction? I'm sorry, but as I look out at you guys, a lot of your reactions or super tiredness and sleepiness. I see you guys struggling to stay awake. I see some of you yawning. I see some of you on your phones. Is there a football game on tonight, uh, today? Are you guys checking your um, fantasy scores or whatever? I see all this happening. What is your reaction in the presence of God, recognizing that he is here? What is our reaction? Checking scores, falling asleep, you know, is this our reaction is what I am saying. How about us? When we see, when we recognize him, when we're in his presence, do we worship him? Do we, do we break out into songs of praise? You know, Pastor Q does that sometimes. He'll just put Daniel on the spot and be like, sing this one. And Daniel will be like, oh, and he comes up here. So he gets put on the spot a lot. But yes, this, you know, when, the, when we're moved, the spirit moves us to just spontaneously, you know, sing. And we can also sing in the spirit, make up our own words. It doesn't have to be a published, written song that everyone knows. But for us to just break out in songs of praise, I don't think we do it enough. It would be great if God's people broke out into spontaneous praise and worship any time that we felt his presence. And we need to do it more often. And lastly, worshiping him, worshiping him and, and singing praises to him, it also includes telling people about him. When we worship him, when we gather together, two or more gathering, when we sing praises, when we're giving thanks, we're actually telling people about him. We're letting people know that we are grateful, that we are praising, that we are worshiping a God that we believe in. And in Simeon's song, verse 32, he recognized that the Christ was the Messiah and that, he that the Christ was not just for Israel, but for the whole world, but for the whole world. Remember the angels, when they came and spoke to the shepherds, they said that I bring you great news and it will be news of great joy for all not just the Jews but for all which includes the Gentiles and this is an earth shattering concept for the Jewish people as we know the Jews unless you're the Messianic Jews they still it, they just can't wrap their minds they just can't wrap th their, their thoughts around the fact that this good news is for everyone not just for them that this, because um, they're thinking at the time, the Jewish people are saying, we're the chosen people. They're saying that we alone have a covenant with this God. We're the ones that follow all the rules and regulations and the laws and the commandments and all these things from God. These heathens and Gentiles and pagans, they don't do that. What do you mean this good news is for them as well? And now God flips 
their belief system upside down, absolutely just turns it topsy-turvy and every which way. And I had to think about this. Sometimes, you know, we talk about the Pharisees, we talk about the Jews, and we talk about how, how can they be so clueless? How can you not see Jesus is the Messiah that you've been waiting for? There is no other, and you get so frustrated and and you know I have Jewish friends and and you get so like how can you not see you know oh you know we 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 worship the same God but you just have to kind of you know believe and accept that Jesus was the Messiah the one who came the little baby but I don't know if I would be able to do and accept as we're asking the Jews to accept it because think about this for a moment if someone were to tell me that there is now a third testament there's an old testament the New Testament, and a Third Testament. If someone were to tell me that there's a Third Testament to God's story, I already have the Old and New Testament, and that is my complete Bible. That is the Holy Scripture beginning and end, and that is the whole thing, right? But if someone were to tell me that there is a Third Testament that makes, you know, that has been added to the Bible and God's news and God moving in the world and, and just the story of God had continued and there is this Third Testament, I don't know that I would be able to readily accept that. For the Jews, the Old Testament is their complete Bible. The Hebrew scriptures, it is the Bible, the one and only that they, they accept and they know. They don't call it the Old Testament. It is just the Bible to them because they don't accept that there is a New Testament. So if there is a Third Testament, how readily or quickly would I accept it? How readily or quickly would you be able to accept it? So you have to kind of think about the Jews. They're being told all this time, the Jews, you know, they're told about Moses, the prophets, and all their scriptures, that they're the chosen one, and all this kind of stuff. And now there's this whole second act to this play after the intermission, and it's like, it's, it's earth-shattering news for them. But Simeon sees it right away. Simeon sees it right away, and he knows that Jesus is the Savior for all, not just to the Jews, but for all, and that includes the Gentiles. Thank God, because this is good news for us, because we're all Gentiles, unless some of you sitting out there are Jews or Jewish background. We are Gentiles, and we are equally accepted, and the good news is for us. Anna also, in verse 38, says that she, it says that she gave thanks to God, and right away, what did she do? She began telling everyone about Jesus. So now, what about us again? Does our life tell people and point the way to Jesus? Do our words, do our actions, do they point to Jesus? Do they tell people about Jesus? Do we recognize that Jesus is the Savior? And do we want to let everybody and anyone know about Jesus? Both Simeon and Anna, they waited for the Messiah with this great um, proactive, this great expectancy at a time when very few did. We who are waiting for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're waiting for the second coming of the Messiah, we should be doing so actively and faithfully and being devout in it. In sharp contrast to the two characters that I talked about in the play by Samuel Beckett in Waiting for a Godot, in sharp contrast to those, they were helpless, they were hopeless, they contemplated suicide and and. They just had no hope. In contrast to them, they were to be the super opposite of that, waiting with great expectations, actively waiting, excited about it, looking forward to it, that we have this undeniable hope. And in Titus, I think I have it up, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, it says, we wait for the blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the blessed hope that we are waiting for. So as we celebrate his birthday on December 25th, two days from now, we wait faithfully for Jesus to come again. So as the praise team comes up, I want you to consider. I know, well, some of you, maybe you're not done with your shopping yet, and you're going to go shopping today and tomorrow. I advise against it. It's going to be crazy out there. But as you think and look forward to giving presents, opening presents, having Christmas dinner with family, with friends, holiday get-togethers and parties, and all that we think about when we think about Christmas, I want you to take a moment and think about Simeon and think about Anna. And think about these two that really they so often get left out of the Christmas story of all the angels and shepherds and wise men and, you know, all this stuff. And think about what is our reaction? What is, is our interaction as we wait for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ while we are celebrating the first coming of our Lord Jesus as a baby? Let's all stand together. As we sing this song, like I said, let's consider, as you think about this baby Jesus, so many pictures and illustrations of this baby laying in a manger, there's straw sticking out from underneath uh, this baby, and you see animals, always pictures with animals around. And you think about and consider this baby and how Jesus will come again the second time. And have that picture in your mind. Those two pictures you can hold together.